Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson. The broadcast on WKXL AM and FM and podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're listening to this by podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like us, share about this show on social media and tell your friends. My former colleague, Congressman Steve Israel, left Capitol Hill unindicted and undefeated, as it is said, to pursue a career as a writer. In addition to writing two critically acclaimed satires of Washington, The Global War on Morris and Big Guns in 2018, both available, by the way, on Amazon, and I've ordered both in used hardcover copies. To Steve's delight, I'm sure. Steve Israel now heads the new nonpartisan Cornell University Institute of Politics and Global Affairs in New York City. Israel was a member of Congress for 16 years. He left in 2017 having served as House Democrats' chief political strategist between 2011 and 2015 as chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the vaunted D-Trip, as it's known on the Hill. President Bill Clinton called him, quote, one of the most thoughtful members of Congress. My friend Steve Israel states, isn't really saying much at all. Uh, he's a regular political commentator on MSNBC, and his insights appear regularly in major national publications. Congressman Israel's latest literary venture, however, is his brand new bookstore in Oyster Bay, Long Island, called Theodore's, a highly strategic move that cleverly guarantees him at least one outlet for his own writings. Steve, welcome to Beyond <laughs> Politics. Oh, I miss your sense of humor, Congressman Hose. I miss you. I just wonder whether our former colleagues miss us. Well, they say they do. I've, I've been I've been back back there quite often. President Obama appointed me to the National Council on the Arts. So in pre-COVID days, especially, we we were I was down there quite a couple of times a year. And I made it a point to visit the floor and visit my old colleagues. And I was actually down there recently and seeing how the Democrats were doing. And there was a lot, there was a lot of glum faces around as they tried to fathom how to get along with the folks on the far right. But they some some of them even remember, some of them have to be reminded. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. But it, it's always interesting to go back. Well, I don't know if you had the same experience I did, but when I decided not to run again, as we approached the end of my final term in Congress, I, I was told I had to meet with the sergeant at arms for a briefing on what I could and could not do once I left Congress. So as you remember, we had an orientation when we got to Congress. When you leave, you have a disorientation. Yeah. <laughs> and totally. uh, I, I remember the, the sergeant at arms saying, well, you have the title congressman for the rest of your life. Just because you're leaving doesn't mean you lose the title. People will continue to call you congressman, and, and you can walk on the floor of the House anytime you want to, and you have access to the Capitol building 24-7, as long as you're not a lobbyist. And you can even use the member's gym, as long as you're not a lobbyist. And I said, well, let me get this straight. They still call me congressman. I can go to the floor, the Capitol building, and the gym anytime I want. And he said, yes, sir. 
And I said, geez, if I knew that 16 years ago when I ran, I retired 14 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all the fun of being a member of Congress without any of the, uh, the stress vote. of worrying about how you're going to vote or what people think about you. Or the stress of raising money, which is its own form of stress, isn't it, Paul? It, it is. It is. And, and we're going to talk. We're going to talk about that because it's a topic that most people hear about, but they don't really know about. But before we 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 get into that, I, I and this is it's somewhat of, of an awkward but important segue. You published a piece in The Hill about a historical perspective on what's going on in Ukraine with Putin and what happened in World War II with Adolf Hitler. And would you just share with us uh, some of the main points you made? And and I think the historical perspective is is really critical to understanding where we are in this very challenging situation now. Sure, Paul and, and Matt, one of the things that I did when I left Congress uh, was I was asked to write a, a bi-monthly column uh, in the newspaper, The Hill, which you guys know is very well read by members of Congress and folks in the administration. And I, I just wrote what was, for me, the most difficult piece I've, I've written since leaving, and that is comparing the chilling and, and frightening history of Europe and Adolf Hitler with what's happening in Ukraine today. Now, I want to hasten to say that comparisons of Putin and Hitler or comparisons of, of Hitler to anybody are fraught with danger. There was only one Adolf Hitler, and the magnitude of what he did is unparalleled. But there are snippets of, of policy and behavior that are very much reflected in uh, Vladimir Putin. And so the argument that I uh, made in, in The Hill was that if you look at what Hitler did with respect to Czechoslovakia, his invasion of Czechoslovakia, after he agreed with the international community in the Munich Agreement that he would take or actually be gifted the Sudetenland, the fringe areas of Czechoslovakia, which had an ethnic German population of 3 million people, he makes that agreement with Neville Chamberlain and France, says, you give me the Sudetenland and I will be a good boy. I will, I will no longer act on my territorial impulses and aggressions. And within months, he invades Czechoslovakia in defiance of agreement, in defiance of world opinion, in defiance of the opinion of some of his own generals. And he did it on the pretense of a, what he called a genocide against ethnic Germans. And he said that these areas in uh, Czechoslovakia were experiencing human rights violations. And so he had to go in and protect these ethnic Germans. And he did. And then it was Poland. And then it was Luxembourg. And then it was ultimately France. Now, you tell me what the differences are between that kind of behavior, that decision to invade a foreign sovereign country on the basis of a fiction that there are human rights violations occurring and in, in complete violation of international opinion and what has happened with Vladimir Putin. I don't see many uh, differences with respect to that very specific history. Well, at the risk of taking us from the deeply profound to the insanely ridiculous, mm -hmm. I, I do want to ask you about what you mentioned a moment ago about the reality of serving in Congress and the thing that members of Congress, and I've got two of them on my Zoom screen right now to my left and right, the reality that, that you guys face. It's not as profound as War and Peace, but I think there's a case to be made that the way members of Congress raise money is messing up our country as much as 
anything else. And you've actually become quite notable in your post-congressional career for being very bravely outspoken about the perils of the system that we're all living under right now. You've written very eloquently in the New York Times and you've been profiled on 60 Minutes. The title of that 60 Minutes piece, which I urge people to, to go back and view, it's available online. It's just as profound an insider speaking out as, as Jeffrey Wigand in the cigarette industry in my mind. The title of that 60 Minutes piece was, Have Members of Congress Become Telemarketers? So. Former Congressman Steve Israel, former chief strategist for Democrats in the House of Representatives, have members of Congress become telemarketers? Look, they, they spend way too much of their time, and, and I'm, I'm so curious as to Paul's opinion on this because he, he lived through it as well. They spend far too much of their time sitting at a little cubicle with one or two phones, calling people and asking them for money. And I get it. It's the only way that they can survive. You said this isn't war or peace, right, Matt? But in a sense, it is, right? You, right? You're fighting a war, as, and Paul knows this better than anybody. You're fighting a war for your political survival in a certain district, and you need resources. You need to be able to defend yourself against the bombs that will be dropping on you in 30-second television ads as you get closer to the election. And so you've got to amass those resources. And the way you amass them is to sit in a cubicle and make those calls and dial for dollars and go to have soggy egg rolls and, and uh, really kind of, I don't know how many day old uh, salsa at a, at a fundraiser at a local restaurant where pack people can literally stand online waiting to talk to you. Now, I was fortunate because I represented a district that was competitive, but wasn't nearly as competitive as, as uh, Congressman Hode. So Paul, I'd love to ask you, how much did you need to raise when you first came to Congress? How much were you told you needed to raise in order to survive re-election? Well, I'll take it back a little bit uh, before that, because when I, when I, I ran in 2004 and got soundly defeated, but had such a good time and was, it was going to be so important, but I decided that that was just the warm-up, and I, I knew that I was going to have to run twice. So in 2004, this is now ancient history, I had raised something like $600,000, not nearly competitive enough. In 2006, after visiting Rahm Emanuel, who at the time <laughs> had, had your job at the D-Trip, he, he, he told me not to sit down for the meeting because it was going to be short, and he said, look, when you've raised a million dollars, come on back, and then we'll talk about whether or not we'll help you. And in the end, I did raise the million dollars, and then I started to raise more, and Rom came to New Hampshire for me and decided that I was worthy of support, and the D-Trip secretly purchased television time in Boston under with some other corporation that nobody knew about and was able to flood the airwaves at the end of the 2006 campaign, and I defeated a long-term Republican hold on the seat with the help of Rom and the DCCC, I, I set a record for fundraising. I think I, I raised a couple of million, maybe two, $2 million, maybe three. And that was ancient history. Now, now, it costs, now it costs more. And when I got to Washington, part of the orientation was, you're going to have to raise a lot of money all the time. And in fact, that's your main job. And my staff, including Matt Robeson, who is sitting here with us, made sure that I spent every waking possible minute raising money. Yeah, um, I, 
I, I could just chime in on this and say that as much as you got a very direct intervention from Rahm Emanuel, who was famous for being gentle and not at all profane about, about these kinds of things, at the staff level, Rahm had someone, I'm not going to mention because this is someone we know, like, has a broadcasting career, has been a guest on this show. So the bottom line is there were people working for Rahm Emanuel when he had Congressman Steve Israel's job as the head of the DCCC. There were people working for him. All they did was every week haul all of us who worked for the most vulnerable members of Congress who had to raise the most for their reelection efforts. They would haul us all into a meeting and they would beat on us to, to insist that we get our bosses to call time to go raise money. And of course, if, if you weren't making it over enough, you'd start getting calls from these staffers from the DCCC. Hey, Matt, why isn't Paul showing up enough for call time? We haven't seen Paul enough for call time. Is he raising the money he needs to raise this week? So yes, it, it's, a, it's a closed circle. So I don't know, I, I, Congressman Israel, is that basically what you expected? Well, no, I, I remember distinctly my first uh, week in Washington after I was elected in 2000, I was like Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith goes to Washington and my eyes are wide and I went into a, a meeting and the Democratic leader at the time came. The election had been, I don't know, maybe two weeks before that. And the first question was, how much have you all raised in the two weeks since election? And, and we, we, we thought he was joking, but tragically he wasn't. And he said this to us, I'll never forget it. If you're in a competitive district in a high-priced media market and you're not raising $10,000 a week, do not expect to get reelected because the Republicans, he said, they're raising $10,000 a week. Now, let me just give you a contrast. $10,000 a week was the expectation in 2000, for 2002. When I chaired the DTRIP uh, in 2011 through 2015, I was telling candidates, if you're not raising twenty-five dollars to $30,000 a week, you're not going to win. And that, I mean, it, that tells you everything that is going wrong in Washington, D.C., because you can raise that money, but that means you're not spending time thinking about, or as much time as you want to, thinking about what really matters back home and how we're going to guide ourselves through the international complexities and challenges that we have. And just to kind of put a finer point on that and, and maybe like play the movie for, for people, I mean, Steve was alluding a moment ago, Paul, to what it's like the soggy egg rolls and the cubicle. But I mean, when we talk about call time, what we mean is that the best way that, that humans have discovered in our system of government to raise money, it's not a whiz bang, like app enabled thing or for all the vaunted discussion of emails for members of Congress, it's call time. It's literally you block out four hours a day on your schedule. And, and what happens? What, what do you do? Well, let me give you a, a little perspective from from my standpoint. So, so New Hampshire is an interesting place because it's a it's a small state, and it's a small state where people feel like, well, because we volunteer and we're so active in politics, we really don't really need to give people that much money because because they don't really need that much money. So, when you're calling from uh, a seat in New Hampshire, you got to call all over the United States of America. You've got to call everywhere and make the case that your, my seat, your seat in New Hampshire, the seat in New Hampshire is so critical to the health and safety and future of America that people all over the country ought to give you money. So when you're making calls, you're often calling very, very blind. And you end up just in terms of call time, sitting with a 
young 20 plus person next to you in a beige windowless cubicle that can be, uh, it's usually at the Democratic headquarters off the Capitol ground campus, okay? Because you're not allowed to discuss money or fundraising or anything like that while you're on the campus because that's illegal. So you got to go off campus. And there's there are the, the sidewalks between the Democratic headquarters and the Capitol are worn. There are grooves in the sidewalks from the back and forth of members who are making their brief appearances on Capitol Hill and then going back to call time to sit in the beige windowless cubicle with a giant stack of call sheets, which your call consultant has helped your, your team put together. And you just go one after another for hours on end, interrupted briefly by votes or or committee appearances, or some other, perhaps, meetings with constituents interrupted by those items in order to get through your pile of sheets. And I mean, Congressman Israel, from your standpoint, kind of perched atop this entire enterprise where you literally are running the organization that's hounding the members of Congress to show up in the beige windowless cubicles. I mean, what was your perspective on this while you were while you were running it? Was it basically... If, if I don't if I don't keep the pressure on these gals and guys to do this, my side is sunk. It's it's yeah. it's an arms race, like you were suggesting before. Yeah, look, the, the pressure was uh, always the reminder that the majority was either going to be a Democratic majority or Republican majority, and that our values and priorities could only be passed if we had the gavel. And tragically, the only way we would have the gavel would be if we raised the resources for our candidate and won two, uh, over 218 seats. So there was that, that imperative that sometimes you have to do really crappy stuff in order to reach uh, a noble outcome. The system needs to be fixed. I, I, I don't know if Paul ever heard this story, my favorite call time story, there were so many of them, but I just have to share this one. Paul, one of our colleagues was calling through political action committees and he got somebody from the letter carriers a union on the phone and he made his pitch rough district i'm a frontliner if i don't get your five thousand dollars i may not be coming back so i can defend your priorities and finally the pack director said all right all right congressman we're going to do five thousand and then our our colleagues said to the letter carriers political action committee great could you do me a favor could you fedex it tomorrow <laughs> wow you do not know your audience man <laughs> Is there any way to fix this, really? I mean, is is are there practical ways to do this? Because it does remind you a little bit of mutually assured destruction during the Cold War. Yeah. And it's not like either side wants to unilaterally disarm. I know for a fact that behind the scenes, members of Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, hate this. They absolutely hate the situation. They'd love to step back from the brink, but they can't seem to do it. Is there a way? Well, you're exactly right. Both sides hate it. Both sides see it as a human rights violation. Call time should be covered by the Geneva Conventions. And yet neither side, when when they have uh, 
obtain the majority has been able to pass fundamental campaign uh, finance reform. The ultimate answer, in my view, is just to take money out of politics to have public financing uh, of congressional campaigns or very, very strong and deep incentives for public financing. That takes a lot of the big money out of the system. But for as long as members of Congress, particularly incumbents in both parties, retain an advantage as incumbents in raising money, I don't see anybody readily agreeing to that kind of disarmament. Paul, what do you think? I, I, I pushed fundraising uh, campaign finance reform as one of my key issues for the time I was in Congress. People in New Hampshire said that, that, that they cared about it. They said they cared about it. And I can't remember a single telephone call in which a prospective contributor ever raised the prospect of why don't you just work harder on campaign finance reform? We never got into that question as an issue from, from the prospective donors, including, by the way, people who for years afterward, it took me a long time to regain my community of friends because when I would make calls, everybody, oh, you started with people close to you. Well, that meant people used to be my friends no longer were taking my calls. But even they did not raise issues around campaign finance reform. And New Hampshire was a real leader. John Rao had started an entire effort and really worked hard at it. I brought I brought the issue, I brought it with me and, and hoped to see it pass, if only for self-preservation, because the I really pretty quickly grew to loathe the hours I spent sitting at the national headquarters. The only window, by the way, it was a beige windowless cubicle. The only window looked out on railroad tracks and a brick wall. So, so the only visual, visual relief you ever got was a train going by. And it tells you a little bit about, I, I think it was part of the part of the concept of how do you keep these guys in their cells at the hard labor without any distractions whatsoever? Because I'll tell you, when the best thing you can actually think of is, can I make it to the next Kit Kat bar break? You know, you know that your mind has become warped. It's a, it's a, it was a warping experience. I love what you said, if I may, about the Kit Kat bar break, because we actually had, now here's a little secret that probably shouldn't be shared. We had, when I shared uh, D-Trip, we had a list of members' favorite snacks and what kind of incentives would be required. And so Matt, you talked about being browbeaten as a staffer to make sure that your member went. We would, we would call chiefs of staff, right? And say, is it Kit Kats? Is it Hershey bars? Is it jelly beans? What's, what do you need to be put in a bowl in the snack area that will keep your boss on the phones? For me, I mean, I hated it as well. I had to raise not only for myself, but for D-Trip. For me, my, my weakness was jelly beans. I would walk in and there'd just be a huge bowl of jelly beans. And so not only was I able to raise like $20 million, but I think I gained 20 pounds in the, in the process. Oh, man. Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. for you, was it Kit Kats, Paul? Was that the for, secret weapon? For me, it was Kit Kats. But something you said raises a really interesting point, which is you had to raise not only for yourself, but also for other members and the D trip. And in yeah. fact, I remember a, 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 a really pleasurable trip 
I took to your district that you arranged for me and I think one or two other members to meet all the people who were your supporters in your district because you came from a pretty tony area. Let me tell you, your place in Long Island, it's pretty nice. And they're nice and there were good donors and you were popular and you had successful people and you were kind enough to invite us in to help us raise money from your people. I could never do that in New Hampshire because right. I couldn't even get them to give me money, which is why I always had to, I felt like work doubly hard. But one other thing, just as an interesting point, one of the reasons I jumped probably too early to run for the United States Senate was that I saw there were only two paths to power in the US Congress. One was you outlive them, and since I had started late, I wasn't going to outlive anybody to get to a place of power. Or you raise enough money for other people that you get elevated to leadership because being elevated to leadership seemed to me to be based solely on how much money you raised and how much help you were to other people. Well, yeah, that is an important criteria. I wouldn't say it was, it's the only criteria, but it was important if you wanted to demonstrate to your colleagues your leadership. You wanted to be able to show them that you had the capacity to raise for them, to bring them into your district, to go to their district and raise. And that was important. I do want to say that I, I, I want to correct any impression there may be that this process, sitting at the cubicle and munching on jelly beans and Kit Kats and begging people for money is corrupting. I personally do not believe it's corrupting. I do believe there's a massive opportunity cost. The worst thing about call time is it is time not being spent figuring out how do we protect the middle class and working families? How do we raise the minimum wage? How do we stop climate change? How do we make sure that there's peace in the world? It's the opportunity cost that I think is so impactful negatively on public policy. Well, I'll point out, first of all, <laughs> Congressman, you've jogged a memory for me. I think I remember receiving the call from your staff. It might have been Heather McHugh, actually, who called me <laughs> 14 years ago to say, what does Paul like to snack on? How do we keep him on a sugar high in front of the desk? But more to your point, I actually just did a, a show of, it was an episode of another show we do called Great Ideas about fixes, reforms, way to make, ways to make things better in America with an expert who had written an op-ed in the Washington Post where he and colleagues had studied how many witnesses are coming to committee hearings and how much time members of Congress are spending on committee hearings. It used to be committees were the places where policy got made in Washington. That's for many reasons, not really the case anymore. But one of the things he's cataloged is that there are 20% fewer witnesses. And in part, that's because members of Congress aren't going to these hearings. Most of the time, what's actually happening, is, and I can, I can tell you this from a staff standpoint, if I was gonna go over the schedule for the day, with a Congressman Paul Hodes in a frontline district, in a difficult contested district, I would tell him, well, there's a committee hearing at 10 a.m. And what I want you to do is show up, get accounted for in the roll call, and then slip out the back, do two hours of call time, and our staffer there will call you if there's a committee vote. So you don't wanna miss the committee vote and you come running back. And that's the kind of impact, I think, Congressman Israel, that you're talking about. And that kind of leads me into a, a question I had for you, which is, it, it occurred to one of the things that's going on with these committee hearings is that they've kind of turned into grandstanding exercises for the cameras, just to get a moment on C-SPAN. 
And so one of the potential fixes would be, well, maybe C-SPAN isn't such a good thing. Maybe we should turn the cameras off and let members of Congress do serious work, a little bit more serious work anyway, behind the scenes. But it occurs to me that a, a small fix like that to some of what ails Congress is sort of meaningless without the root cause of fundraising. So are there other reforms that you think would actually make the work of Congress better? Or ultimately, is money the root of all evil? Does it all come down to fundraising? No, I think it's a combination of money and, frankly, gerrymandering. When I, when I went to Congress in 2000, there were 150 fairly competitive districts, moderate districts like Paul's, where, where, where compromise was actually a value, where you could run on crossing the aisle. When I chaired the DCCC as a result of gerrymandering, 11 years later, the number had shrunk to 75 and half because districts were drawn either further left or further right to protect incumbents. And as Paul knows, in the 2020 presidential election, the number of pure swing seats, districts which elected, which voted for either Trump and a Democratic incumbent or Biden and a Republican incumbent had been re reduced to 16, one six. So 16, I mean, maybe on a good day, 25 districts where an incumbent knows that he or she must compromise, must do serious legislating and not grandstanding. That helps explain why Congress is as factionalized, as polarized and as partisan as it is. A combination of being forced to govern in sound bites and then have to raise the money to pay for those sound bites is a pretty lethal combination for democracy. So, Steve, when you retired, you were you were widely respected. You had served in leadership positions. You were positioned for higher leadership or higher office. You were you were a powerful member of Congress. And most people who aspire to politics, like me, dream of achieving half of what you did. Is it is it all because of fundraising? Why did you give Why did you give that up? Well, you're very kind in what you said. I don't agree with you. I think that you and many others achieved it just as much as I did. I just got the, the, the glamour of the title, quite honestly, of, of chair. For me, it was, it was a personal decision, as it is for many. I Number one, I couldn't stand the fundraising anymore. And I was on a leadership track. And I remember speaking to, to then leader Pelosi, and she talked about the future. And I realized that were I to really commit myself to a leadership track, most of my life would be spent raising money, not only in cubicles, but getting on planes and traveling and going to districts. And secondly, I, I just had other curiosities and passions. I wanted to write books. I wanted to open up a bookstore. I wanted to spend more time with my family. They had sacrificed for 16 years when I was in Congress. My, my two daughters had a dad, and Paul, you, you, you understand this, who got on a plane every Monday night or a Tuesday morning and disappeared and then came back Thursday or Friday and then had to work the district all weekend long. I just decided that 16 years was about enough time for me to have enjoyed my public service and it was time to do other things. I, I wanna avail ourselves and our listeners of some of your expertise. We've already kind of pitched the idea that you were, and I think you still remain, one of the Democratic Party's top strategists. You certainly you. held that, that position formally. That explains all those seats we've been losing. I yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> everything we've done wrong. You know, blame, blame the previous guy. That's all Rom's fault, isn't it? Yeah. So obviously right now, Democrats are in, I mean, history is against us here. Yeah. The, with, the, with the approval rating that President Biden currently has, which is well under 50%, the historic trends suggest the median loss of seats 
for the Democratic Party would be 37 seats. That's the median over the last 70 or 80 years. And obviously, there are some other headwinds in Democrats' faces right now. If you were still in your old job, what would you be advising Democrats as a party to do? Is there any way out of this? Oh, there is a way out of it. First of all, I'm not as, I, I'm realistic. It's a tough environment. Midterm elections are, are referendums on the uh, president in power. And so the Democrats absolutely face headwinds. But I believe that the current chair of the DCCC, Sean Patrick Maloney, has built a strategy to withstand these headwinds. It's going to be hard. It's going to be very, very hard to retain the majority. But if COVID is behind us, if it's an unpleasant memory, and if the economy's successes are more evident to people who are sitting around their tables, not in statistics, but in experience, people's real life experience, and depending on what happens with Ukraine, the Democrats may actually have a more favorable environment going into the midterm than, than they do now. It's too early to, to really make those pronouncements. And I'll just say one other thing on this. Just a few months ago, the Republicans were crowing about the fact that on gerrymandering alone, on just on gerrymandering, because they had control of so many state capitals, that they were going to pick up between 15 and 20 seats. Well, it turns out that it's the Democrats who are likely to pick up seats as a result of this. So I don't believe that it is productive to speculate. I do believe it's important to build your strategy against either the headwinds that you will face or to exploit whatever tailwinds you have. And we're not gonna know where those winds are, are headed until August or September uh, of, of the mid, um, midterm election. So I was kind of an accidental congressman. I, I had a background in the arts. I, I, yeah, I was a lawyer, but really I was a musician and a playwright and I'd been an actor and I, I had a kind of creative side that I, I luckily, I, while I was in Congress, I was able to slake my thirst by playing guitar for various fundraising events and 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 and, and other musicians and you were amazing amazing guitarist i remember <laughs> and and you turn out to be an extraordinary writer i mean wow. I, I just by just reading the blurbs on amazon about your two books the global war on morris 2014 and big guns 2018 i was in stitches and eagerly eagerly and happily uh, I now know from Amazon, they're on their way, right? As we speak, those books are winging their way to me. So but tell us about your satirical writing. What's it about? And what are you trying to achieve? Well, the first thing I have to do with all the love and respect in the world is to tell you that now that I operate my own bookstore, we call Amazon region in Latin America. <laughs> in South America, <laughs> we're a little independent bookstore. And so Amazon is the A word, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, I get for it. For an independent bookstore. So Amazon.com, where people right. can order books and have them shipped to them within uh, 24, 48 hours. Okay. To your question, for me, Paul, playing guitar was probably your therapy, right? It helped release the pressure. For me, it was writing. I'd get on a plane and head to wherever or drive to New Hampshire for a candidate. And I would just spend all of my time writing satire about politics. I would hear stuff that our colleagues would say in caucus meetings. Remember how crazy some of those statements became. And I'd write it down and work it into my two, my two satires. The Global War on Morris is a satire of the early years of Dick Cheney's handling of the global war on, terrorists, uh, on terror and was optioned to Rob Reiner for a 
a Hollywood project. And Big Guns was my way of dealing with the asinine stuff that I would hear from some of our colleagues who privately believe that we need gun safety in America, but would then go out and vote against every single common sense gun safety bill that they could. And admit to me, yeah, I'm ashamed of myself, but I have to do it because of the NRA. So rather than cry about it, I decided to make fun of it by writing uh, Big Guns, which my general manager would tell me to remind you can be purchased at theodoresbooks.com. Theodoresbooks.com. So folks, if you're listening to this on podcast, we are going to put that link right in the podcast notes and check it out. It is, you know what? I, we're not anti-Amazon. Oh, Jeff Bezos, please, please don't. Please don't have us killed, but support your local bookstore and, and support Congressman Israel. Congressman, the other thing that you're doing right now is you're teaching and you're, you're engaging with students who want to get into public service. This was, this is a position that I found myself in. When, when you are a staffer on Capitol Hill, you spend a surprising amount of your time counseling young people who want to become staffers on Capitol Hill. I still, to this day, advise people, do it. It's a great experience. It's awesome. Yeah. It's inspiring. I still had that Mr. Smith goes to Washington feeling every morning that I walked to the, and saw the Capitol Dome on my way to work and said, wow, I, I work here. It's awesome. On the other hand, I also counsel candidates who are thinking of running for office, and I try my best to talk them out of it. And I start by telling them what Paul just said, which is the very first thing you have to do is write down the name of every single person you know or have ever met. And the better you know them, or if you're closely related to them, the more money you have to ask for them. So picture yourself asking for $5,000 from your old high school girlfriend. That's what you're about to take on. What do you say to students who want to get into public service, either as a staffer or a candidate, do you encourage them? Do you try and talk them out of it? No, in fact, and I'm, I'm so curious as to, to Paul's experience with this. I have a pretty dystopic view of, of the future, except for the one, two hours that I teach at Cornell University. I teach a course on politics and film. By the way, if you can't pull an A in a course on politics and film, there's something. <laughs> but I will tell you that it is the best two hours of my week because when I am engaging with young people who have tolerance, and respect and say to me, you guys screwed this up, but we will fix it. And here's how we're going to fix it. And are so passionate and committed. I am nothing but optimistic. Paul, do you have the same experience in your encounters? I do. And I, all the, all the talk about fundraising, uh, we take to heart. And at the same time, I loved my job. I loved my job. It, it was, I, I got into it because I wanted to do whatever I could to change what I saw as a country on the wrong course. And I was fortunate to be surrounded by wonderful, idealistic, smart, accomplished yes. people on my staff. It was one of the best experiences. Matt Robeson and I have, have stayed friends and are now doing this together. So that was inspiring. And we worked despite all the pressures of the fundraising, we worked every day to make the world a better place. And we accomplished some important lasting things that were important for the people I represented, the people of the country. Yes. I was fortunate enough to be there when we had the majority and was fortunate enough to be able to play a role in helping to get Obama to become the president. So I, I felt like my time in Congress was, was great. 
that it was important for me that I was able to accomplish what I accomplished and maybe and and and, and, and I was able when I left to leave with my principles and values intact. As you said earlier in the show, uh, the raising money was, was challenging, but I never allowed it to influence me improperly. And, and so, so I, am, I encourage people to public service because it is owned by having good people running for office and taking office with the right values and principles that our democracy will be saved and perpetuated and that we'll have the future we want to have. All right. So on that actually very sublime note, I'm going to ask a final silly question to Congressman Israel. You teach politics and film. Do you teach the Eddie Murphy film, The Distinguished Gentleman, which in my mind is the most accurate depiction of going to Congress that I've ever seen? I'm not making this up. Is that part of I, your is that part of your career? It is. Semester I teach in, in the uh, fall semester, and every semester I rotate different films, so I don't get tired with them. I did do the Distinguished Gentleman. We start with Mr. Smith goes to Washington. We end with Veep. We end with television content and streaming content, uh, things like Veep, and we just show how culture has changed its portrayals of politics and how politics has impacted culture. Think about Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Think about Julia Louise Dreyfus in V. That tells you everything you need to know about culture's reflection of politics. It sure does. Well, Congressman Steve Israel, it's really been a pleasure and a privilege to have you on Beyond Politics. And thanks very much for joining us. I just hope Paul Hodes runs for something else in New Hampshire. I'm ready to write a check. <laughs>